Hello, and welcome back to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. I'm Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Well, welcome to July. Somehow it is the middle of 2022. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's flying by. Uh, But here we are. It is currently July 3rd when we're sitting down to record this. And we're in a we're in a special month here. We haven't done one of these, I believe, since last October. And if you're familiar with what we do in October, we do a theme month. So welcome to July. Welcome to a theme month. Let me tell you just very briefly what we're going to be doing this month. Uh, so again, if you've been around our podcast any any amount of time, you know that every once in a while we do this thing called like weird Bible passages, um, where we just discuss some. Um, some strange things, you know, we've we, we've discussed things like the Nephilim and angels and other things like that. And it's like, these are these are just weird things that like in our every uh, quote unquote normal common experience, we don't, you know, ever really see or interact with. Um, and so somewhat related to that, uh, I believe a listener had sort of recommended like, hey, you guys should almost do like a mystery month, like kind of, um, you know, uh, investigative, like digging into some just weird and quirky oddities within scripture. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil the episodes that are forthcoming, uh, but today specifically, we're going to be looking at, um, not necessarily in depth, the woman caught in adultery, but we're going to use this passage as an example of textual criticism. Uh, this is this is a passage that you find in John. Uh, specifically, you find it in John eight. Um, well, I guess technically it's it, it's it's part it, it's it, the way that it's broken up is weird. It's it's the very last verse of John seven, and then going into John eight, um, all the way up until verse eleven. So it's like John seven fifty three through John eight eleven, uh, but it's this passage that has some, um, you know, some questionable. It's 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 questioned whether or not this should be included it's, in the text. It's mysterious, one might say. Exactly, and that's why it's There's in a... it's in Mystery Month. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So th- this this passage, it, it's one that I think we're all familiar with. I mean, most people, I, I would imagine, have read the Gospel of John. Um, if nothing else, you've heard the term. Uh, you know, cast the first stone or let him without sin cast the first stone. I mean, that comes directly from the mouth of Jesus in this passage. Um, but as uh, to, to just give you a very brief background on this passage before we talk about the textural criticism, uh, as I mentioned, this is found mainly in John 8, 1 through 11. So if you wanted to go through and you can read it, uh, but basically, uh, Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees are there, and they bring this woman who they say has been caught in adultery, uh, and they make her stand before everybody, and they, they basically, basically present uh, saying, teacher, you know, rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, it says to stone such women, so what do you say? Uh, and they, they sort of do this to trap him as they're often trying to do. They're often trying to catch him, uh, you know, get him in a, a we, we got you, Jesus, ruler of the cosmos. We're, we're going to trick you. Um, and so they're, they're trying to find evidence to accuse him. Uh, so Jesus, being, <laughs> being the Lord of the cosmos and, and knowing everything, knowing the, in- the intentions of their hearts, Jesus stoops down. So I just imagine like, there's this woman who's probably like fearing for her absolute life. I have to imagine that like she's probably not fully clothed. Like I don't know. Like they said that she was caught in the act, so it just seems like they've brought her out like while the thing is going on. So she's she's probably scared and cold and like has no idea what's going to happen. So like Jesus, this guy stoops down into the dirt and he starts writing on the ground with his finger. <laughs> it, like, there's almost a little bit of, of irony here. It's it's almost, I mean, I don't want to say comical, but I mean, like I said, he, he just, this this situation is an intense one and he, he bends down. And so they persist at questioning him. They, they, they keep throwing their questions. They keep asking, what do we do? And so he stands up and he says, the one without sin among you should be the, be the first to throw a stone at her. 
That's the way that the CSB renders it. The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. And man, oof, that's a, which, who among us doesn't have sin? Obviously, Jesus is cutting to the core of our, our being. We, we are all sinners. We all have sin. We've all fallen short. Uh, and so he stoops down again and continues to write on the ground. Now, I want to know what he's writing. Like, is Jesus just like, bending over and writing a little, you know, a little poem? Is he, uh, you know, maybe writing some passage from the Torah or something? We don't, we don't really know, but that's like a fun mystery too. What was Jesus writing in the dirt? Um, but you know, when they heard this, the, I'm sure they were convicted to their core. And so they leave one by one, um, starting with the older men, uh, until it was only the woman left. And so Jesus stands up yet again and says, woman, where are, th- where are they? Has, any, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Um, so again, a passage that I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. Um, but what we want to just touch on briefly is just the, the idea of, of self-righteousness, uh, the, the self-righteousness um, that is sin in, in all of us. Um, I guess like, you know, along with any number of lessons that we could learn from John's gospel, this passage, and again, we're going to talk about if it should be in the, 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 the canon or not, but this passage, um, it does teach us, it's, it, it, it exposes the pharisaical and hypocritical tendencies in all of us. Uh, think about our, our social media driven world, um, our hyper political climate that we find ourselves in. It is very easy to be uh, quick to point fingers. It can be quick in a in a cancel culture to want to like point the finger to condemn and to blame other people. And just like the the passages about you know first get the log out of your own eye before you t- address the speck in your brother's eye. Similarly, here the the hypocrite the the hypocrisy the hypocritical nature of these scribes and Pharisees, which is where we get the term you know Pharisaical. Um, it, it's just overflowing. And so, again, when, when Jesus bends down uh, and, and these people leave one by one, uh, this passage is, is, is great in revealing the, the grace, the mercy, and uh, the forgiveness that, that Christ offers not only this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, but all of us. This is a, almost a microcosm because this is, this is what it is to, to, to be a Christian. There's, there's, there's justice um, but there's also also mercy. I mean, um, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Um, so there, there's, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. But he says, go and from now on, do not sin anymore. He's not saying like live a perfect sinless life the rest of your days. Um, but he's he's called her to, to a life of holiness, to to living uh, the way that that those who follow Christ live. Um, and so this this is a great example for, for all of us. Um, to follow when we find ourselves reacting judgmentally or with an attitude of, of self-righteousness towards someone else's sin. We should remember how much God has forgiven us and that none of us has the right to throw stones. Um, so that that's kind of what I wanted to say about this passage. I, 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 I want to first ask if you had anything you wanted to add. If you didn't, I just had some other mysterious and rhetorical questions, but I wanted to give you space to to add anything before we go to the textual criticism side. Yeah, no, I think that's a great overview. And it is one of those, I remember this being my favorite Bible story when I was younger. And then I remember one day, I I, I don't remember specifically, but at some point I came to understand, you know, or, or, you know, have some sense of understanding like that, the little footnote that said earliest manuscripts don't have this story. Like, I, that, you know, at some point that came to be a question and a concern for me, like, well, wait a second, what is the, should this be my favorite story if, if it isn't there, <laughs> um, which we'll get more into that, but, um, it, it is, uh, a very popular story, a very popular, like episode of Jesus's life for a reason. And I think it's pretty obvious to see that, um, just in terms of its sort of impact from, a, from the perspective of witnessing God's mercy through Christ's action here. And also I think it's worth noting, like you mentioned it being sort of a microcosm of 
of um, our life as people and also our life as as Christians. And I think at any given moment, we're probably certainly left to our own devices. And even once we've been, um, you know, living with Christ for a while, I think at any given moment, we're probably either one of the Pharisees or the woman in our own situation, um, either pointing out somebody else's sin and demanding, you know, perfect justice be meted out to them while we get to take credit for pointing it out, I guess, or helplessly standing before, you know, the the holiness of God and, and having no real defense, you know, um, in terms of just, you know, right and wrong, justice, that kind of thing. And I think that uh, it can be perhaps, perhaps helpful to uh, try and keep that in mind more than we, at least I do, um, just our left to our own devices. We are quite ugly and quite helpless. <laughs> and I think that um, the obvious answer that this passage gives us is, well, it's 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 just Jesus. That's the, really the only answer, and that's uh, what we see here. And yeah, I don't know. I do love this story, and I think it's um, it's it's quite vivid. Like some, some are, I feel like some stories are a little more so for me than others in the gospels, but this is one of those stories that really, it's easy to put myself in that little circle of people and sort of get to like witness the story happening in my imagination. Um, it, it's just, it's very, there's a lot packed into not a ton of space. And I think that it's, uh, is, is well worth thinking about and talking about, um, especially, when you do get to the point of asking yourself, well, why, what are these brackets doing? Or, you know, however your printed edition does it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have, I don't think I have much else to add. Okay. Um, beyond just those kinds of reflections on, on just like how I think about this passage. Yeah. Well, I just had a couple of other things I wanted to, to briefly bring up and then we'll get to the textual criticism. Uh, but you know, you, I like that you mentioned how much is packed into these like basically 10 or 11 verses. Um, and for me, I, I almost am more fascinated by what's not said. I don't know if you guys ever have that where you're reading a passage of the Bible and you obviously you see what it says, uh, but you're missing maybe some of the subtext or just the things that are going on behind the scenes. Um, but like one of the questions that I, I posed to Lucas and we were offline here was like, first of all, how did they even find this woman? Like the way that the the way that the passage is written, they make it seem like she was caught in the act. This wasn't something that oh we heard a, a week ago you were committing adultery. Like it seems like this was you know maybe they were aware of somebody who who was uh, had a had a a reputation. Maybe they heard as they were walking throughout town to try to find you know a way to catch him. Maybe they heard like hey you know I, I heard this was going on or I saw someone walk into this place. Uh, but it's just a little fishy to me that like these scribes and Pharisees like are able to present a woman who was caught in adultery. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what about the man? Like this, this, this passage is often referred to as the woman caught in adultery, or as the CSB says, the adulterous woman. Uh, but what about the man? Like adultery is not a a one person act. This is at least two people. Um, and so why is it that the Pharisees don't bring the man before Jesus? Uh, because Mosaic law would have required anybody who would be caught in the act of adultery be stoned. So why do they only bring the woman? Was was the man of noble or political reputation? Was he, did he escape somehow? Because, you know, maybe he ha- he was strong enough to fend for himself and get away so they could only bring the woman. We, we don't know. Again, this is something the text doesn't tell us. Uh, but it's it's one of those questions that I that I've often asked is like why is it that um, that it's only this woman who's brought before and obviously we can ask any sort of you know any number of rhetorical questions you know is it because it's a patriarchal uh, society so they're you know maybe they don't treat women as as well as men are treated is it uh, is there something else going on below the surface again at this point it's just speculation. Um, but I guess regardless, this this question remains at the end of the day is, should this passage be in scripture? Uh, is it on the same level, uh, the same playing field? Is it of equal footing as the rest of John, as Luke, as Isaiah, as Romans, whatever other passage we're going to talk about? Uh, it, there at least seems to be some considerable amount of question 
regarding if we should include this in the canon or not. I believe most modern English translations do include it. They just have it bracketed off or there's footnotes or there's something to tell you, like Lucas already mentioned, that the earliest manuscripts did not include this passage. And so that is the segue. Again, we wanted to ha- we wanted to have this conversation about textual criticism, and we just felt like this was a great example of that. Uh, perhaps another one, if you were looking for one, would be like the end of Mark. I know that's a, a pretty significant one on like, is that legit or not? Um, so I know Lucas has a bit to say here, so I will stop. So what do you want to say about the legitimacy on on this passage or passages like it? So obviously like that question that you put at the end of, so we have this text and we have these things that we can learn from it, just like any other text. We have these, these lessons that Jesus is teaching through this episode um, but there's for, for this one, there's this question that you posed of is, should this be here? Sh- you know, it is here. Should we look at it the same as, you know, the next section starting in, uh, eight twelve, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. You know, there's no footnotes there. Um, and okay. We come to those questions. How do we even begin to sort through those questions? And that's where the connection between this big topic that we've been alluding to, textual criticism, and this passage, John seven fifty three to eight eleven, comes in. So you know, as I've been doing, as we've been talking with my brand new Christian Standard Bible, published by Holman in genuine goatskin leather, thin line, two column, uh, sent to me by my good friend and co-host here. Um, I've been reading along, and at the top of this section, there's a little note that's like almost like a heading that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811, uh, and there are brackets around those verses. And I'm sure if any of you crack open your Bibles, like you said, any English translation is going to do something like that. As I have never seen a modern printed Bible take it out or like put the whole thing in a footnote. As I was researching for this episode, I did I did see like in the past that has happened. Like there are there are there are even manu- Greek manuscripts where there are little markings that indicate that the scribes weren't so sure about this. Um, so I don't know if other modern versions in different languages do do differently, or if it's just sort of the the modern convention to just note like notate that it's that it's, uh, there's something different about it, and then leave it as, as it's come down in the in the manuscript tradition at this point. But where does where does that mean? Where where does that come from? So the man when people talk about manuscripts, we're talking about the the copies of an ancient text. In this case, the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospel of John. You know, depending on your specific context, and there are you know the way that we get the this Bible is we have a bunch of copies of these books and that's, that's how we know what they say. And the science and art of establishing what the best reading of a particular verse is, is called textual criticism. And it, this, the, the like sort of basic idea is using the, you know, I believe for the Greek New Testament, it's 5,300 um, manuscripts total. That's not 5,300 of every verse, every book, but total. Um, using those manuscripts, comparing, figuring out what the text said in its original form, uh, correcting errors in this manuscript by comparing it with that manuscript, et cetera, et cetera. And notice I said science and art. Um because we can't get in, get in a time machine and go back to, you know, John's scribe who was, you know, taking down his gospel as he was dictating it. Um, we can't do that, so we have to sort of make educated guesses. And there are people whose entire career is devoted to textual criticism. And because of this field and because of the really difficult work that goes into doing textual criticism, 
that's based on the really difficult work of archaeology uh, and unearthing and finding these manuscripts and then collecting them and editing them so that we making sure we can read them. You know, it's 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 an entire field. Uh, and because of that, we have uh, Bibles that we can read and, and we have um, printed editions of the Greek New Testament that we can go to if we know Greek. And same for the Hebrew Bible and, and everything else. And this is the same, as a, as a brief aside, with any ancient work. You know, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars or um, Virgil's poetry or whatever. Um, this is how we know, like when we read a book that's that's ancient, where we, we're, we're reading a text that we have been able to put together because of copies of that book that have survived. If there are no copies that come down through history, then you'll never be able to read that book because it's gone. And copies written on paper wear out. Things get burnt up in fires. They get ripped. They get old and fall apart. So when you're, you know, some of you who are perhaps older and or more faithful than me have had the experience of your copies of the Bible, you know, the binding falling apart because after years and years of opening and closing and carrying it and bringing it to church and putting it in your backpack, whatever, it starts to fall apart. And you, so you need to get a new one. And that's with, that's with modern binding that is able to be cheaply made fairly sturdily with glue and all that kind of stuff, not just ancient pieces of parchment. So that's sort of a brief idea of what textual criticism is trying to do. And what that has to do with this passage is that there are some textual critical issues that come up if you're looking at the ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Chiefly, like it says, the earliest manuscripts don't have this story. Um, it's if, if we go back to the first copy of the Gospel of John that we, can, that we currently have historically, which is not the one that John or his scribe put pen to paper on, um, but, it, but the earliest one that we have a copy of, you will not find, or at least the earliest one that we have the whole Gospel, not just a scrap of it, you, you won't find this story. Um, and in fact, you won't find the story in any manuscripts for quite a while, a few hundred years. And once you do start finding the story present, it moves around. Sometimes it's right here. Sometimes it's earlier in chapter seven. Sometimes it's at the end of John. Sometimes it's at the end of Luke. Um, which is, that one was like, I didn't, I'd, I had never heard that before. And I, that was really interesting to me. Um, so you see, even when, so you see this lack of, attestation. And then even when you begin to see manuscripts including it, there's clearly no consensus on where this is supposed to go, which indicates that there's no consensus, an agreement that the Apostle John put this story, you know, at the end of what we call chapter seven and the beginning of what we call chapter eight. Um, and that happens sometimes. There are, there are, there are sections of, of, uh, books that get moved around or sometimes the beginning or the end will get cut off because, you know, the front page is the most likely to fall off if your book's falling apart, that kind of thing. Um, but that's not true of every single paragraph in, in any given book or anything like that. But this one is obviously not clearly defined in terms of this is where it belongs, this is who wrote it, this is what it's saying, and we've had this since the beginning that's just not the case and that's really challenging or it can seem really challenging at least if you think about well how do i know what i'm reading is the bible how do i know that what i'm reading is the word of god that was revealed and written down to the you know prophets and apostles um and that's where the science and art of textual criticism comes in so these questions are textual critical questions, and that's sort of the the toolbox that you need to be able to solve this mystery of why this verses these verses are set off at brackets, and ultimately to answer the question, what should we do with it? Um, so I guess I, a question I wanted to ask you real quick too is this: there might be a better place in the conversation to ask this, but I don't want to forget about it. Do whether this whether this came up you know, during your, your tenure teaching regularly at, um, in a church context as a youth pastor, or whether what, maybe it didn't. And this is just more of a, of a abstract question. Like, 
if you're working through the book of John and you get to the end of chap- chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, you're and you're a pastor or youth pastor or you're teaching a Bible study or Sunday school, like, you personally, like, do, do you, what do you do? Do you, do you skip over it? Do you not mention anything and just teach it, go, go straight through at the same as you've been doing? Do you do something in between? Like, like, what are your thoughts if you have them about like, just off the bat, like you're teaching through and you come to that little note and those brackets, like what yeah. is your immediate response? Well, my, my immediate response is I'm going to do something that addresses it. I'm not going to ignore it. Excuse me, man. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So it, what, the first thing that comes to mind is it, it, it does depend on the, the audience a little bit. Um, you know, ver- youth, youth versus adult, I guess. Um, however, because if, if you're, a, if you're a youth group student, um, typically you're probably not going to have as much exposure or at least knowledge as maybe your average adult on a Sunday. So like if you're just a, a sixth or seventh grader sitting in the, you know, in the chair at youth group and you're flipping through and we're reading through John, we just talked about John seven and now we're going to go to John nine all of a sudden, or maybe, you know, maybe John eight verse 12, I would be like, Hey, what's the deal? Why did you skip this bit? Uh, I would have questions on like, oh, maybe this was too inappropriate or maybe the youth pastor just didn't know. So like personally, I would not just skip it. Um, I want to think that I would at least preach on it. I, I would, I would, I think I would preach on it. I would, I would give the caveat that the text gives. I would, I would probably do my best to even explain some of what we're explaining here that like, he, this is called into question. Here's why. However, people much wiser and smarter, more intelligent, more learned than me have have done the hard work of like you said, I think the uh, the science and the art of translation. They they've done the work and have at least included it here if nothing else out of tradition. And so like let's read it and let's see what we can learn from it. Um I think that that's what I would do personally. I think that's some of what I would say. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other the other thing that it, it, your question sort of presupposes that like you're preaching through a book of the Bible sequentially. I mean, if you're just hopping around from topic to topic, it's really easy to not address this section at all. Um, I, unless you're just a weird person doing a sermon series on adultery or something or sexual sin. I don't know how else you would how you'd bring this into a you know into a theme. Uh, but again, if you're especially if you're preaching. Um, you know, from John front to back, which I imagine a lot of people have done. I, I think I think it would do you well to to at least address this passage, if not at least, or if not, actually preach it. So that's my answer. Yeah, and I I pretty much agree. Like I wouldn't want to skip it, and I wouldn't want to ignore, um, because the brackets are in every you know. The brackets are in your the Bibles in your pew, you know. So like, if you pretend they aren't there, that doesn't mean everyone in the audience is gonna, yeah, you know, not notice them. Yeah, and I think one thing I'll add just real quick too is, especially when you're learning, when you're growing up, um, I think it's really important to address some of these things like textual criticism. I mean, if you're somebody who comes from a background, say, of like the Catholic Church, you might even wonder why the the Protestant version of the Bible doesn't have the, uh, like the Apocrypha, for example. Like, why are the books in between the Testaments excluded? Um, like, I know that question came up a couple of times when I was a youth pastor. Um, but yeah, for, for some of these passages that have a little bit of like variation that aren't entirely clear... Uh, where there's speculation on if it should be included or not. Like, I think it's important to address those things and to talk about why that matters. Yeah, I agree, definitely. I mean, obviously, maybe it's no surprise that you and I would say something like that, considering what we do in our free time with this podcast. But anyway, uh, so we go back to the beginnings of the the uh, manuscript textual history of, of the Gospel of John and of the New Testament, and we don't see this story uh, hardly ever, um, and when we do, it's not very secure in terms of its placement. Um, but now it's in all our Bibles with the caveat that's given. So what happened in between? So basically, you know, to to ridiculously oversimplify a story that's way over my head, the um, 
this text, this this story, this pericope, uh, which is a fancy word for story, <laughs> um, came to be more like it came to have more of a of a common presence in the manuscript history. But interestingly, at first, it's primarily focused in like the western part of the church, which suggests that this isn't uh, you know universally something that's being um, copied and read and used by the churches, but rather there is some kind of local aspect to it where it starts to be used in this area and kind of sticks around there for a while. Um, and as you as you may know, the, the western part of the church spoke Latin, and as you may also know, St. Jerome basically creates a new Latin translation at the request of the Pope that comes to be called the Vulgate. Uh, and as you you also may know, later on at the Council of Trent, that Bible, that version of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, is stamped as the official, um, the official version of the Bible by the Roman Catholic Church. And Jerome includes this story here. Uh, for, for, for plenty of reasons, I, I, like, he's... He was a magnificent biblical scholar and translator at, like, I'm not questioning his reasons, but and it's not like he did it out of nowhere. Um, but that sort of gives a little bit of a, of a you know, somewhat, somewhat clear, straightforward-ish answer as to, like, why, at least in the Western church, of which Protestantism is a part of, um, that it, it is, is more or less solid in the, man, the, the biblical... Um, you know, copies of the Bible and translations that people have from basically Jerome onward. And Jerome is a contemporary of Augustine. Um, so this is this is early 5th century, like early to mid 400s. Um, Augustine also, there, there, I forget where it is. You might know. I, I don't know um, where he wrote about it. But the, he, he does reference this story, like, favorably. And, and he, he kind of speculates that there were some people who were basically in the centuries before him who were basically afraid that it would lead to um, less discipline when it comes to sexual sin and and uh, um, because Jesus is so forgiving that people might be less concerned about their own self-control. So they didn't want it. You know, um, I don't think there's any evidence for that outside of, of you know, some comments uh and and even someone like augustine as as mighty as he, he is in terms of his his uh influence i i don't i don't know that we can base a theory purely on his own speculation but, i don't know man I mean, the most holy the most righteous man augustine the guy who is the 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 man i don't i don't know i yeah hey if we're gonna take any one person's speculations it probably should be him at least that, in the west for sure fair, so yeah so, uh, I, and I'm not throwing that out, but it is kind of funny. To, it, it's, it's, but the point is, you do see this trajectory where something that, as far as we can tell, isn't there originally, begins to gain in popularity, and then as part of that, uh, eventually becomes pretty solidified. Um, so that's sort of a, a, a brief history of... of that but the question is still there like well okay why why would you start adding this in like on what basis can you if you're jerome or if you're some pastor somewhere uh reading through um the lectionary and you get to you know like like on what basis can you start adding in this section that isn't in the oldest manuscripts and this raises questions of it's the, the scholarly consensus and all the evidence points us to the fact that this is not originally part of John's gospel. The gospel according to John that was circulated, written in Greek and circulated among the early Christians, did not include this section originally. So it might seem kind of cut and dried that our gospel according to John that we're reading in our churches and circulating and studying shouldn't include that either. I think that's a very logical sort of, you know, if this, then that. But I think that there are other considerations because that doesn't mean that this didn't happen. That doesn't mean that John didn't teach his disciples about this. 
That doesn't mean that this wasn't part of the early Christian's oral tradition about Jesus. Now, I have no idea if it is any of those things. I, I, I can't see into the past. But the point is, there are, basically, there's, there's more than one answer to where this came from. You know, we, we could have some kind of weird, cynical, this was just invented at some point, and then people liked it, so they thought it was good, so they kept it. All the way over to, you know, John did write this, and it was suppressed, which, again, neither one of those things seemed very likely. Um, there's there's a few, you know, I've read a few theories on, on how we kind of deal with it. One that I think is really interesting, um, there's a 2018 Journal of the Evangelical Theology Society article by Scott Kazarowski, sorry, um, and he suggests that it's this is basically an inspired text that has been later on inserted into a different inspired text. And so you there's there's this this mystery of how it like first gets connected with the Gospel of John. We we know how it kind of got you know bolted in there to stay put, but like there there's this there's this question that I don't think we can answer just historically of like okay, who is the first person to take this little story and, you know, staple it into the book of the Gospel of John. Um, without being able to know that, we can evaluate the story in terms of its reception, in terms of the way that the Spirit has used the story throughout the history, the way that the church has received it, not just individual people like Augustine or Jerome, um, as well as its consistency with uh, maybe not the written style of the Gospel of John. And there's even some... There, there, there's. There, there are very there's there's a good amount of internal evidence just in the writing that this is not part of John's gospel. So even if that's true, it's still consistent with the Jesus that we see in the New Testament and in John's Johannine literature specifically. So these are these are other questions that we need to ask that aren't necessarily textual critical questions anymore, but they're theological questions that are really really important. And they're you know you can. You could make. You, I'm sure you could. You could. You could have a whole scholarly career on this story. Um, many people have, I'm sure. Um, and there's 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 a lot of, of different ways that you can try to resolve like what you do. You know, like we got we kind of touched on earlier. Ignore it. Pretend. You know, it, like either ignore the the story or ignore the brackets or anything in between. You can come up with a million different ways to do that. I think that um, we ought to accept the text that God has preserved and given to us. Um, and that text has included this story for many centuries and has been used by God's spirit to grow and edify his people, the church. And the church has, has, has given its stamp of approval down through the centuries on Bibles that include this um story and that might not be a satisfactory answer for you and if it's not i suspect that there might be some more foundational questions that either my answers are different than yours or maybe you haven't thought through yet but before we get to those bigger questions i want to know like you kind of you kind of already you know touched on what you would do, and I think kind of touches on how you feel about it. But what do you, what do you think? Like, with our very brief historical overview as to like where it came from, how it got there, all that kind of stuff. Like, do you have anything you want to add in terms of like your conclusion, or or maybe maybe conclusion is a strong word, but your thoughts in terms of of like what you think about this story's presence in John's gospel. Yeah. And I, you know, we've had this month planned for a little bit. We knew that this episode was going to, was going to fall into the, the schedule. Uh, so I've had a little bit of time to think about it, to dwell on it. And man, I, I have, I, I personally think that we should include it. Now I don't, I don't have all the justification. I don't have good answers as to why I think that, 
Um, part of it is like, even as I try to research some of this, some of this is just like a little bit above my head because I don't work in the field of textual criticism and I've never seen these manuscripts and such. I don't, I don't read original Greek or Latin or whatever. Um, so like I have, I, as a, as a somewhat of an outsider, as somebody who's just approaching an English translation of his Bible, um, like I said, I sort of err on the side of like, again, people who do those things that I can't do have determined that like, Hey, we're going to put it here. We're going to put it here with, uh, you know, a, a warning or like a, Hey, just, just so you know, type deal. Um, but they, they've still chosen to include it. And so I, I, you know, I side with them. If, if in like a hundred years we, we come across something that like changes people's minds significantly about the validity of including this in John and if suddenly you know English translations start excluding it then like maybe I'll flow with that like I'm at, on this in particular I'm comfortable just like going with the flow <laughs> which I it might sound like I don't care I don't mean it to sound that way like I do care it's just that like I don't have enough uh, knowledge or expertise to have a, a stronger opinion because as I've said three times now the person who or the people who made those decisions did determine that it should be there and so I'm going to roll with them on that um, I don't know I think that's that's my I have I'm totally okay with that you know I, I think of like history for example and I, I believe it's Thomas Jefferson but somebody started cutting up their Bible, like uh, all the things they didn't necessarily like. And so they had this very narrow condensed version of, of scripture. Like that would be way different. Like if we had people who like started following the Thomas Jefferson version of the Bible and we're like, no, this is the Bible like that. I'm going to have a lot more uh, hesitation with, um, but we we've had evidence for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, many translations, people doing very difficult uh, science and art in translation and have determined like, Hey, this is going to stay here. We'll include the note that it, you know, hasn't always appeared, but we're going to leave it. So that's for me, I'm cool with that. Side note, you can actually buy Thomas Jefferson's, not like the one he used, but you can buy copies of it. Like it's printed and published modern and, and it has like, it has like photocopies like it has like the text and yeah. then on the opposite side it has like photocopies of of the page that he actually <laughs> used um I'd i'm not very, surprised very interesting it's, it'd be cool to own just to, it would to be. look at uh, i would i would own it i would own it as like novelty thing yeah. right right it's like this is just kind of like a like oh one of those weird things that's cool to own it's not going to be something i'm going to stake my life on no i mean it yeah. wouldn't be much right but yeah <laughs> i i think i think that's i think that's that's really helpful um I would go so far as to say that uh, we should include it and, you know, we have the proof through over a thousand years of this being preserved in our t in our biblical text of the spirit using it. Um, and that, again, is is potentially quite a controversial claim, depending on your like standpoint. Um, but I would I would maybe go so far as to say, uh, you know. I'm comfortable reading this passage on par with the passages around it, regardless of what we find, because because we found what we found, and the the sort of you know, in a way, you could say like the empirical experimental results are that this does what the Word of God does, you know, and so these bigger questions that might make some of those things sound kind of funky or weird is what is our authority, right? We're talking about what's in the Bible. The Bible didn't fall from the sky. We as Christians are not Muslims, meaning we do not have a an Islamic understanding of the Quran for the Bible. The Quran falls from the sky, not not like physically, but the Quran in its current form is given directly to Muhammad through the angel by Allah and if you read a translation of the Quran, you are technically not reading the Quran. There is a very rigid understanding textually of what it means to be scripture in an Islamic framework. And that's not the Christian framework of, of, of how we look at the Bible. And whether maybe, maybe you think it should be, maybe whatever, I'm saying it shouldn't be that way. The Bible was produced by the community of faith 
Um, and it is, it is inspired by God working through those apostles and prophets and teachers, but it's not a magic book that is given to us wholesale all at once um, that is untouchable. Now, I'm not saying untouchable in the sense of like we can go in and change the Bible, but what I'm saying is the the form, the final form of this, as I'm holding, 66 books that say these things produced by collating this many manuscripts, that doesn't happen overnight. That, that takes a lot of work and time because of the way that God chose to use the, the historical development of Israel and the church producing these texts that reflect on the word of God, capital W, who is Christ, and the revelation given to them. And there's another question. A lot of times, you know, we'll talk about like with the Apocrypha or, or stuff like that. We might say things like, oh, is this, is this book or is this text canonical? And I think that we need to separate our understanding of something being canonical versus something being inspired. Those are not actually the same thing because the question of whether something is canonical, um, I've referenced this podcast a few times, but um, the Lord of Spirits is has really helped me to clarify some of this. Um, like they always use this example, the question of whether or not first Enoch is canonical is it's not a question. If you're Ethiopian, it is canonical in your church. The Ethiopian Orthodox Bible has first Enoch. If you're not Ethiopian, it's not canonical. How do you know that? You go to any of those churches and look at their Bibles and their lists. So I can, I can, you know, I can take this CSB and I can flip through and I can tell you that, you know, the book of Psalms is canonical. Um, strictly speaking, that doesn't tell me whether or not the book of Psalms is inspired by God. And questions about whether or not you think something should be canonical are different than questions about whether or not you think something should be inspired and whether or not you think something was was given by God as part of his revelation to be written down. And I think that that is helpful in the sense that it's more it's a more precise use of terms which makes it easier to get at what the real questions are when we're being more precise with with what we're asking and how we're asking it. And so in that sense I can tell you pretty with without much nuance the story of the woman caught in adultery is canonical for, as far as I know, every current Christian in the world, um, certainly every Western Christian, and certainly every church that I've ever been around or, or gone to services in or, you know, uh, been a part of. Um, and I think that I can make a good case from the history of the church across the whole world, not just not just the church of Jerome or not just the church of Augustine, not just the church of, um, you know, that I grew up in or whatever, um, that this is a text that has been received by God's people as instructive and edifying as his revelation. And I think that that, that is a stronger authority than whether or not I can do the right amount of research to try and collect a bunch of manuscripts because I don't have that expertise and knowledge and skill like you were just saying. Um, now, that is not to say that people who do have expertise and knowledge can't get together and do research and make a mistake. That That's not what, what we're saying. And that's not saying that you just need to find the right external authority, human authority, put yourself under it, and then you never have to do any thinking. That's not what we're saying. But this is a this is not something that twenty years ago started getting put into into Bibles, right? Um, this is something that, on the basis of good historical, theological, biblical studies, going all the way back to Jerome, because Jerome is making his Latin translation and putting it in the Latin translation on the basis of Greek manuscripts he had, right? It's not it. it the whole Bible doesn't fall out of the sky. You know, Jerome's Latin translation doesn't fall out of the sky. And this story 
in Jerome's translation doesn't fall out of the sky. So we can we can maybe say, oh, well, you know, at the end of the day, the reason this is in our Bibles right now is, is you know, in large part thanks to Jerome, but he's getting it from somewhere. And beyond the, the written part of it, there's this longstanding tradition that this is an authentic, apostolic, true episode of Jesus's life, even if it's not one that John originally wrote. And another side note within a, a Johannine theological context, the end of John's gospel even says Jesus said all kinds of things that we can't fit because the, the, all the books in the world couldn't fit, or the, the world couldn't fit all the books that you'd have to write. So, I mean, nobody thinks that every waking second of Jesus's life is recounted in the four gospels, but you know, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little bit rambly here. So I think I'll, I think I'll, I'll kind of land the plane a little bit and just basically say that these are the kinds of questions we need to be asking because it doesn't take long to get into these big foundational sort of meta questions. Once you start asking questions about, you can do the, the, the manuscripts and the textual criticism to, to look at the history of this section being in John. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that you can answer, I'm not sure that you can give a strong answer to the question of whether or not this should be here until you've asked these broader questions about what does it mean for something to be in the biblical canon? What is canon? Where does canon come from? Forget about this, you know, not being in the early manuscripts. What makes those early manuscripts uh, reliable Um rules of what ought to be considered canon by right and these these are there's a much 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 longer episode to be had about issues of canon in the abstract but i wanted to touch on those because at the end of the day these questions the mystery you know the the uh the investigation we had to do to look at what is john 8 or 753 through 811 all about you can't you can't do that investigation without getting into these foundational questions. So we wanted to at least raise these questions, even if we aren't able to answer them. And we're certainly not going to be able to answer them, you know, finally, you know, give the final word. But it, it's something you got to think about. And this is why we can't just be little floating heads on sticks independent of the church. There's a reason Christ gave us the church when Christianity is not an individual religion. Um, it's not it's not something you do on your own on the golf course, you know, talking to God <laughs> or, or wherever or, or doing whatever. So, and th this is, this is one aspect of why that is because the Bible is a communal document in the sense that it's for a community, but it's also, it also emerges out of communities and you can't ignore that without, you know, sort of cutting yourself off from some really key points of, of context. I think when you get to questions like this, I don't know if that made sense. I don't know if I am just babbling, but th those are those are sort of the big questions I want to raise and the thoughts that I want to give as far as how you start asking these questions. And hopefully, hopefully, I've been able to explain it, you know, somewhat, maybe clearly. But yeah, I don't no, know. That was we'll great. See. No, that was really good. And I think the 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 last the way the way that we'll close. It, before we go to a prayer is just with a couple of fun facts. You know, I think we've, we've had a, a pretty heady conversation here. So let's just close with some, I don't know if humor is the right word, but just some interesting things about this passage. Um, I always find it funny, uh, interesting when English idioms like figures of speech or common phrases that are uttered have a biblical like it, beginning, I guess. And so the I'm sure people out there that are Christians have heard this, but you can you can hear this on the schoolyard or whatever. But uh, you know this idea of cast the first stone, let him without sin cast the first stone. That like I mentioned earlier, that comes directly from this passage. So that's kind of interesting. Um, another interesting fun fact, and this is something like I never really thought about before, uh, but this passage has been taken as confirmation of Jesus's ability to write. So, of course, like, the creator of the cosmos, who doesn't need to write because he can speak things into existence, uh, well, you know what? Jesus actually could write. Whether he was writing words or drawing 
I guess is not clear because the the word that's translated in John 8 8 could mean draw it could mean write um, but we have confirmation here that Jesus knows how to draw or at least you know he, he knows how to write or at least he knows how to draw which is kind of cool and like I mentioned when I was briefly talking about the passage I want to know what he wrote or I want to know what he drew like there's just like a couple of passages that come to mind where like Jesus is playing in the mud I mean, Jesus like spits in the mud and like wipes it over some dude's eyes in another gospel. And then here in the middle of this really intense uh, confrontation, Jesus just stoops down and starts drawing in the dirt. Um, You know, I I just got back from a camping trip with my in-laws and, um, you know, there's there's parts of it that are pretty sandy and we we were near... um, uh, the, the gravel road. And I'm just picturing that area that was especially Sandy, just like, Oh, like kneeling down in the middle of some intense moment. And I just like start drawing or writing in the sand. Like it's, it's just so comical to imagine. Um, anyway, those are just kind of fun facts, little interesting tidbits about, about this passage. So, uh, I guess Lucas before, before we pray, I just want to say, I'm really excited about this month. I, I love when we do theme months, when we have, uh, I mean, I love all of our episodes, but to to focus on like uh, an idea, you know, we've had a month about Jonah. We had Martyr uh, Martyr May last year. Um, we've done now two heresy months. Like they're just a good time. And so to to focus on these mysteries or these um, unique and interesting things about scripture, like I think it's a lot of fun. And I, I think if you've made it this far into this episode, you should come back next week because next week's mystery is just monstrous. And I'm excited. Yes. Yeah, It's this is going to be super fun. Shout out to all the people who have suggested episodes because the seed of this idea came from a suggested episode when we when we got to the bottom of the mystery of who killed Goliath uh, once and for all. Go listen to that episode if you're curious. Um, and then that spawned a suggestion to sort of continue with that, which turned into a whole month of finding these, you know, mystery is is a tough word because it's got a very theological meaning. Um, we're meaning it in the, the maybe the true crime sense. This is your your month of doxology, true crime, putting to, piecing together these, you know, investigations to get to the bottom of what's going on with some biblical question or challenge or, uh, you know, mystery. I don't know a better word for it. So very excited for Mystery Month and very grateful to the involvement of people who are who listen and, and we're just really excited to um, continue to, to go through that for the rest of July. So on that note, I think we'll close with... Uh, with the Valley of Vision prayer, and uh, then we'll we'll be we'll be out. So, let's pray. My Father, in a world of created, changeable things, Christ and His Word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on Him the foundation, to abide in Him, be borne up by Him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, effected them. How sweet it is to be near Him, the Lamb filled with holy affections. When I sin against thee, I cross thy will, love, life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation, disunion, distance from thee, and having a loose spirit towards thee. But thou hast given me a present, Jesus thy son, as mediator between thyself and my soul, as middleman who in a pit holds both him below and him above, for only he can span the chasm breached by sin and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator as a realized object of faith, and alone, worthy by his love, to bridge the gulf. Let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part and by faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. If I receive the word, I receive my Lord wherein he is nigh. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hand, form my heart according to the word, according to the image of thy Son, so shall Christ the word and his word be my strength and comfort. Amen. Well, that is it for today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for checking out this episode of the Doxology Podcast. Thanks for kicking off July with us as we 
dive into these mysteries. Uh, we are, like we've already mentioned, always excited to connect with you online via uh, email, doxologypodcast at gmail.com, uh, Twitter, doxologypodcast, um, carrier pigeon, if you know our address, and if you do, that's creepy, <laughs> but I mean, if you want to send us a letter... <laughs> go ahead um we'd love your feedback questions and future episodes future episode ideas we're always excited to hear from you not to be a broken record but huge shout out to everyone who has reached out and does reach out as well as all the support in terms of just listening liking sharing telling your friends whatever um really grateful and really thankful for all of you and until next time we'll see you later later